Welcome to the Grow Your Wealth Show, designed to guide you through building and growing your empire. Created for those who want to use real estate to build generational wealth. Join your host, Max Boyko, as he interviews some of the most successful real estate investors on the planet. They will guide you through the different aspects of real estate investing and succeeding in your journey. On the show, Max will be interviewing top real estate insiders. Max is a successful real estate investor who's purchased and sold properties totaling in the hundreds of millions. Now, he's bringing all of his experience to you. Grow Your Wealth Show brings you new episodes every Monday and Thursday. This show is brought to you by Optimus Capital, the leader in funding real estate investors nationwide. Let me ask you, would you like to succeed in real estate beyond where you are now? Do you have questions and don't know where to start? Would you like to learn from a veteran investor? then you're in the right place. This podcast is designed for you. Now, here's your host, Max Boyko. Welcome to the Grow Your Wealth Show, how to use real estate to build generational wealth. This is your host, Max Boyko. I'm joined by Andrew Shanti today. Andrew, how's your day going? Doing wonderful, Max. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Can't wait for Labor Day. Gonna actually try to take a couple hours off for once. Good luck with that. Thank you. <laughs> so today we have a really great show. Uh, we're going to talk about new construction loans, uh, some best practices, really what to expect with new construction loans, how they work, how the draw process works, and how to really get it done with minimal hurdles and in the quickest amount of time possible. So Max, on the, the new construction loans, I know you've had a lot of experience with this, working with a number of different large contractors and builders, as well as small contractors. So first thing to understand when you're using hard money to do a new construction loan is that on the new construction side, hard money is there for non-owner-occupied properties. So if you're coming in as just Jack and Jill that are looking to buy your own house, that's going to be a property that you're building for yourself. You're going to want to go the traditional bank financing way, which is typically going to be a very long, drawn-out process. You're going to have to jump through a lot of hurdles. Whereas in, if you're a developer or you're an investor building a new home, hard money is oftentimes one of the best ways that you can go, especially with some of the structuring, the terms, and the, the ease of the process and kind of getting you through the door for the first time out. Max, you want to talk about just kind of the difference between a new builder and, and the way a seasoned builder is treated in this marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. So there's really, I mean, everyone has to start somewhere. Most construction lenders are you know, really going to look for a really experienced builder or if you're just starting out and it's really your first build, some kind of experience, whether you've done some flips or some you know, heavy renovations, maybe some additions. Typically, no experience is a lot harder to get done. And most people really shouldn't be doing their first investment property as a new build, in my opinion, because there's a lot more moving pieces. It's a lot more complicated and the dollar amount at stake is much higher I always recommend kind of getting your feet wet, maybe doing a fix and flip, then doing an addition, maybe a heavy rehab. A lot of times when we look at experience, what we're looking at is you know, how close is the scope of work compared to other projects that have been completed. So if someone has done, you know, say 20 fix and flips and some of them might have been an addition or you know, heavy rehab, there's no problem really moving that into new construction and getting it approved. Typically, we'd like to see three homes previously built, but 
like I mentioned, you know, if you have the experience with the flips, then we can definitely kind of surpass that and use the other experience necessary. There's some other alternatives also with being a new builder is partnering up with maybe a contractor that has built other homes, maybe not for themselves, but for other clients. Contractors will usually get a few extra points basically for experience for new build projects. And you can even add them. They don't have to go on the entity. We can even add them as a guarantor, like non-owning guarantor, which a lot of contractors, if you're just shopping around for one, they probably wouldn't agree. But if you have a relationship with one, or maybe you're a contractor yourself, then that really speeds up the process on the approval side for experience. Now, we have done financing for people that are building new, even if they don't have a contractor guaranteeing the loan. But you would have to use a general contractor. You can't be doing it as an owner builder, for example, or you know managing it yourself. You would need someone with a general contractor license that provides a bid, a scope of work, and some of the loan draws might even have to go directly to them in that case. And the reason for that is because you know, really, we don't know how well you know construction because we don't know what other projects might have been done. So that's kind of a loop around. Gotcha. And then, Max, when you're doing new construction, just like with a rehab, obviously, there's different kind of loan metrics that go into place as far as in the case of new construction, you're going to have loan to cost. So can you kind of break down how the banks look at loan to cost when it comes to these new construction, kind of how much money an investor needs to bring to the table? and kind of what the expectations are thereof. So loan of cost is calculated a little bit differently with new construction loans as it would with fix and flip loans. So typically with fix and flip, you're going to get a certain percentage of the purchase price and 100% of the rehab up to a certain loan to completed value. With new construction loans, it's actually done differently. So the formula that's used is going to be a loan to cost formula. And the total cost is what's your purchase price? How much have you put into the land? How much are your permit fees, your engineering fees, your design fees, architecturals, things like that? We call those soft costs. And then what's the hard costs? And the hard costs are really the vertical portion of it. You know, basically foundation on, you know, driveway, landscaping, things like that would all be considered hard cost. So when a loan is calculated for new construction, it'll typically range somewhere between 75 to 85% loan to cost. With less experienced borrowers, it might even be as low as 70, but that's very rarely the case. Typically, we're in that 80%, 80 to 85% loan to cost range. So you would take the total costs, which would be the land price, the soft costs, and the hard costs. That gives you your total cost. You would multiply it by 80%, and that'll give you your total loan amount. Then you would subtract the hard costs from that number, you would subtract out the soft costs from that number, and that'll give you the initial loan on how much you can get advanced against the land, which typically can't exceed 50% of the land value. If you already have permits, then you can go up to 65% of the land value. But permit fees really vary area by area. So in California, you might pay $75,000 permit fees to build one house, where in Florida, you might pay $5,000. And a lot of times, you know, based on where you're building, it might make sense in that case to either pay the permits up front and get the higher loan to value on the initial loan. Or in the case of California, I always kind of recommend our borrowers to wait to pay the permit fees because of how high they are, get the 50% of the land value, and then pay the permit fees and get 100% reimbursement for them. A lot of times, you know, these numbers may vary really depending on how 
those are calculated. We do have a calculator that we use for that. So, you know, the biggest thing is when you provide a scenario to a lender on a construction loan, you really want to make sure you're providing those numbers. So the cost of the land, if you've owned the land more than three years, you can sometimes go off of the appraised value. Or if you've spent some money and you can show receipts on, you know, say you cleared trees, you did grading, things like that, you can add that to the cost basis. So you add that to the value of the land. Then you want to provide really a breakdown of the soft costs and the hard costs. So, you know, in as much detail as possible. And Max, at what level in the transaction is the bank willing to come in and finance these loans? So if someone's just bought an agricultural lot, is the bank going to come in and finance that? Or are they going to require that you go through zoning and permitting? Kind of where, where does the bank actually come into the play and say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to fund the construction on this? So the way we approach it is you don't, there, there can't be any entitlement risk. So, you know, if it's going to require zoning changes, if it's going to require lot splits, that's typically going to be shunned upon unless it's already got, you know, a final map pretty much completed or approved with improvement plans, things like that. You know, sometimes we can, even if the final map's not recorded yet, we can assume that it will be, you know, typically within three months is the target. So it's, you know, development loan is going to be completely different. And what most people do on those is they'll typically get seller financing on the land of some sort or some kind of a option, get all their entitlements done, get all their approvals in place. And then once the site improvements are already in and the project is ready to build, that's where we would come in and finance the vertical aspect of it. So I would say the banks and really private lenders uh, all around typically are not going to be very enthusiastic about any kind of zoning or entitlement costs or really entitlement approvals that might be needed in order to do the loan. So you really want to approach us once you actually have a project that's ready to build. Now, if it's just a finished lot, you know, say an infill lot in between two homes or in a community and it's ready to build, you could actually get a, uh, you can get a purchase loan on those. We'll still require everything else to be done in there and will require an architect or an engineer to kind of say that there's no zoning violations that, you know, this is the house you're planning to build. You really need to make sure that you have at least a draft set of floor plans for the appraisal or, you know, a very, very close estimate of what you're going to be building. Now that can vary slightly, but just keep in mind that once you get a loan for say $300,000 to build a house, you can't change that loan amount. So if you decide to build a home that's a thousand square feet bigger you know, you're going to still have to stick within that budget that was originally approved. You're not going to be able to get a new one unless you refinance that loan, which is also possible. I mean, I've seen it to where someone buys a lot, they think they're going to build a 2000 square foot house and they're like, oh wait, you know, we're better. We're going to build a bigger house. And then they would actually go in, we'd have to get a new appraisal and we would establish a new loan against the property. Now, what you don't want to do is say you're going to build a 2000 square foot house and end up building a 1400 square foot house because once the inspections happen, you're going to get stuck without your draws because, you know, you basically violated what you said you were going to build to the lender. And we don't have an appraisal for a different size, you know, because the loan's really based on the appraised value. So that's really just something to kind of keep in mind. Okay. And then Max, how is interest calculated on these? So I know when we're doing hard money loans, we have something called Dutch and non-Dutch or New York interest. So when you're doing these new construction loans, what's kind of standard in the marketplace if you're working with a conventional bank? And then how does that differ with hard money? Need access to more capital for your real estate projects? You're in luck. Max is the leader and managing director of Optimus Capital. 
a national private money firm, which provides capital to real estate investors throughout the country. They offer some of the most competitive terms and rates in the industry. Currently, they fund single-family flips up to 90% of the purchase price and 100% of the rehab costs. They also fund new construction, rentals. It doesn't matter if you have one rental or an entire portfolio of 100. They get it done. They also fund multifamily, refinances of all types. Optimus Capital has closed hundreds of millions in loans for real estate investors throughout the country. Whether you're a seasoned, experienced investor or just getting started and haven't done a deal, Optimus Capital has got you covered. Head over to OptimusCapitalCorp.com now and fill out the quick form. The professional team at Optimus Capital is standing by ready to assist you now. So a lot of banks, I mean, they've started adapting non-Dutch interest. So basically Dutch interest is when you pay interest on the full loan amount from day one, which a lot of private lenders and local lenders have typically stuck to. Uh, Non-Dutch is when you only pay interest on the outstanding balance. So that's really important to note because, you know, someone might be getting a low interest rate, like say, oh, I'm getting a six and a half percent interest rate, but they end up paying Dutch interest on it. They're essentially, they're paying, you know, say they have an initial land draw of $50,000, they're going to be paying interest on the full $300,000 construction loan, even though they're only using 50000 of it at a time. So when you're dealing with a lot of this, kind of looking at the various loan options that are out there, you really have to stick to non-Dutch. Nine times out of 10, I mean, probably even nine, 99% of the time, all of our loans are going to be non-Dutch when new construction is involved. The only time we do Dutch interest is for smaller scope of works or if, you know, it's a really inexperienced borrower, there's really something awkward or strange with the deal. But 99% of the time, you know, it's going to be non-Dutch interest. So you're only paying interest on your outstanding balance. So you're not having to pay interest in phases or stages on everything else. What I've also seen is some lenders will do stage funding. So they'll break down the construction loan into three pieces. So like say, you know, a $300,000 loan, you might get $50,000 draw on the land, or they might even require you to have the land paid off in full. And then when you start getting your draws, you know they'll charge you interest on the first $100,000. Then they'll start charging you interest. Once you draw $100,000, they'll charge you interest on $200,000. Once you draw two hundred, dollars they start charging interest on three hundred, dollars And that really drives up the cost of the capital quite significantly as well. So you know, with kind of with the institutional background that we have, the way that we're doing these loans, we're doing them all as non-Dutch because they're going on, you know, basically a warehouse line rather than, you know, private lenders, which will typically set the money aside. That's why they're charging full interest is because they have to set the money aside legally in order to have it ready for when you make draw requests. Otherwise, you know, what if you make your draw request and the money's not there? So that's kind of the philosophy behind that. Makes total sense. And then Max, with regards to like markets and where you can actually get these new construction homes built, what's the preferred markets of our lenders? Yeah, so we're looking at really major market areas, major metros. A lot of like if it's a rural property, it's probably going to be extremely difficult to get a new construction loan. It really has to be a suburban area in, you know, say a metro area that's, you know, 150,000 people or larger. Although, you know, we've gotten some much smaller markets approved. So, you know, there's a little town in Tennessee called Gatlinburg and we were able to get approval to build 10 homes there. 
And the reason is because they have, you know, hundreds of thousands of tourists and, you know, Airbnb visitors that come there. So this builder is actually, you know, they already have 10 Airbnbs in the market and they want to build another 10 kind of in the same neighborhood. They have proven track records of renting them out. You know, so we were able to get, you know, you could say an exception on it and get it done because of, you know, of the desirability of the area, even though the population is only a few thousand people. So that's kind of the the gist of it. You don't really want to be in a second home market that's shunned upon or, you know, secondary small markets where the population is really small. It really needs to be infill in larger markets. But, you know, case by case, like I mentioned, you know, we can get exceptions approved if there's compensating factors, which, you know, compensating factors could be, you know, high net worth, high experience, strong financials, or just like a really high demand in that specific market for a certain type of product. Excellent. And then Max, as far as actual documentation that's required to process these loans through in the most expedient time period possible, what's required? So it's going to be a lot of very similar documents to a fix and flip loan except, you know, maybe a little bit more detailed on the scope of work. You really want to make sure that your scope of work is as detailed as possible because that's really what's going to determine, you know, the appraised value. You know, you want to be specific on the finishes you use or using granite or using, you know, some cheap material. You know, what kind of flooring are you putting in? You know, are there any specific finishes or, you know, what kind of trims are you putting that will increase the value of the property? So that's kind of important, but, you know, primarily it's really, you know, corporate documents. So these loans can only be done to corporations or LLCs. We can do trusts as well, but, you know, you can't do it as an individual because then it, you know, kind of triggers it being potentially owner occupied. Uh, You're going to need experience docs. So we have a form that our clients fill out, which shows kind of what projects you've completed in the past, whether they're new construction, whether they're fix and flip or additions. You know, and then just kind of a list of REO inventory if you have rental properties. You know, that's kind of a good compensating factor. Scope of work, as I mentioned, the appraisal. So it requires two valuations on it. So the appraisal is going to have an as-is value as well as a completed value. And the completed value is going to include the scope of work as well as a draft floor plan or the floor plan. So most of our clients, they already have a floor plan that they're going to be building that they're basing their scope of work on. So that's always important to provide. And, you know, once the appraisal gets that, they go out, they say, this is what the land is worth. This is what the completed value is. And those are the numbers that we use on the financing side to kind of qualify the loan. You'll definitely need bank statements, although, you know, sometimes we can waive if there's, you know, certain factors or, you know, the money might be coming in from a partner or um, other sources. But typically, we're going to want to see reserves for, you know, the first 20% of the construction, you know, 15 to 20% of the construction costs for the down payment, as well as, you know, maybe six months worth of interest to make sure that you you have money set aside to make the payments on the loan. So you're not relying on the loan draws to make your payments because, you know, those are typically not going to be financed the way that, you know, in theory, they're financed, you know, because actually, so this is interesting. A lot of people tell me, oh, I don't have to make payments on my loan with the other lenders that I use. Said, well, did you get a draw up front against the land? Like, well, no, we had to own the land outright. And that's exactly why, is because you're not getting your money up front. You're having to, you know, basically, basically you're paying interest on your interest reserves, which I really find a way that lenders make more money, but the borrowers end up losing out. So the way we do it is we give you the maximum amount of money up front, and that money you can set aside for payments and then really just you know, push through to, cl- to build the house as quickly as possible. 
Another thing often required is personal financial statement. So it's really just a quick form that someone fills out. You know, you list kind of what your assets are, what your liabilities are, what your monthly income is. None of it's really verified, but you know, it is required to have on file just to show kind of a overall kind of bird's eye view of your financial situation. And then really an architect letter or an engineer letter where they fill out and say there's no zoning violations. You know, the property is good to build as it is. There's no issues with getting approvals. You know, they'll write out how long it's going to take to get the plans approved, how long it'll take to get the permits done. And, you know, really that there's no violations of any kind. And then an engineer or architect will need to stamp and sign that letter as well. And if you're not using one, I mean, I've kind of heard some states where they don't have one. What we need is an approved set of plans from the city in lieu of. So, you know, if the city has already approved the plans and we have, you know, plans signed by the city or stamped by the city that they're approved and ready to build, then obviously there's no real reason to get an architect letter. But that's really the concept behind it and why that's needed is so that, you know, really as the lender, we make sure that what you're wanting to build is going to be allowable and there's not going to be any issues getting that built. Beautiful. Well, Max, I think that pretty much covers everything as far as new construction loans. Again, thank you for your time and your knowledge on this subject. Yeah. And there's also like really best practices while building. So we, we have access to some pretty good discounts with, you know, some national supply chains. So we always try to provide that to our clients as well and try to get you to save money on your construction as much as possible. Uh, you really kind of want to buy the material in bulk and buy it ahead of time. You know, scheduling is everything. You want to make sure that you have your project scheduled out when which subs are going to be, you know, on site working because you really you know, time is money. And when you're building a house, you really just need to make sure you're getting it done as quickly as possible. So, you know, scope of work that we require is typically going to give you a really good idea of what your costs will be. You know, you want to get that verified with a contractor, you know, whoever's going to be building it. If you're self-building it and you have experience, then, you know, you should have a pretty good idea of the numbers. But really what I see a lot of investors or builders kind of skip out on is making sure they have an accurate schedule. So you want to have a start date and a finish date for each one of your line items. And, you know, when, cause we've built, you know, significant amount of homes and we funded, you know, probably hundreds of homes now for new construction loans. Uh, that's really the biggest downfall I see is people get delayed because they don't know when certain trades are starting and when they're finishing. And you really want to schedule people ahead of time. Right now there's a big national labor shortage. And, you know, if you're waiting for someone to, you know, do the foundation before you order, before you schedule the framers, for example, you know, you might have to wait two, three weeks in between because the framers might already be busy. So you want to really make sure that you nail down your start and finish dates for each trade and make it very, very clear to them working that, hey, if you guys aren't done on time, you're going to delay this person who's starting on this date. And, you know, and, and then really follow up and make sure that they're staying on track because, you know, you don't want to have someone scheduled to come in to lay the floors if it's not ready for floors or, you know, <laughs> you don't want to have the guys coming in to put on the doors if the drywall is not on yet. So, you know, just really important to just stay on schedule, stay on task. And, you know, I hate to say it, but you can, new construction, you really have to micromanage your people unless you already have a proven track record of them being able to perform and complete their scope of works. So with that, just want to end the show. Thank you guys for listening in, tuning in. Hopefully this was informative, gave you some good input on how new construction loans work, some best practices, and really an understanding of how the loan process is calculated. 
Uh, one thing we didn't go over, I think, is draws. And, you know, that's really all done in reimbursements. I just kind of wanted to make sure we didn't skip that part. So with the draws, they're done in reimbursements and they're done on work completed. So that's really important to note. Certain markets like smaller markets might have a longer turnaround time for draws. You know, it might take five or six days because of how long it'll take an inspector to get out there. But nine times out of 10, you know, the draw process is about a three-day process. You know, once you request it, unless there's a weekend involved because, you know, these inspectors typically don't like to work on weekends. But as soon as you make a draw request, you kind of list out the items that you have completed and you know what percentage completed is so you don't have to prove really receipts or invoices you can kind of make a self invoice most of the draws are just going to be based on the work completed percentage so once you have framing done 100% you say my framing is done the inspector comes over takes photos of the framing you get your draw for the framing and you know usually once you place the order we can get an inspector out within a day or two then it takes them a day or two to process the report and then the next day you would get the wire so, you know, I'd say really like a three to five day process typically, but, you know, certain markets, you know, if there's no inspectors available may take a day or longer, but, you know, typically we, we like to stick and push for that three, three day process for that. So I'll wrap it with that. Thank you guys for tuning in. Stay tuned for future episodes where we'll talk about other best practices, other loan types and details involved with those. And I look forward to speaking with you guys. Thanks for tuning in to Grow Your Wealth Podcast, brought to you by Optimus Capital. If you liked this episode, be sure and follow and subscribe. You can listen to every episode on all major platforms. Have an interest in being on the show? Reach out to OptimusCapitalCorp.com slash show to access the resources mentioned in each episode. Until next time, remember to use real estate to build generational wealth.